First Peter chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 7, read down to verse 11. Let's hear the Lord's word. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And God will bless the reading of his word for his name's sake. We need the Lord's help, so let's go and pray for a minute to ask the Lord for his grace. Father in heaven, it's time to preach. It's well beyond the capacity of human flesh to do this spiritual work. It requires spiritual power from the Holy Ghost. And in Christ Jesus' name, I ask thee to grant me that power. And Lord, it requires more than natural hearing to really understand, to grasp the preached word and for the preached word to grasp the hearer. So we pray as well that thy Holy Spirit will be continually working throughout this day in the hearts of thy people. They might give attendance and give their hearts to the reception of thy truth into their souls. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen and amen. We're turning one final time to consider the subject of living in the light of eternity. It's really uh, an extension of that part of the series where we live the good life, living the good life. You might remember that. And certainly living the good life ultimately is about living in light of eternity. After stating in verse 7 that the end of all things is at hand... Peter says, therefore, the fact that the end of time, which means our entrance into God's eternity, is actually drawing very near, it'll be here before you know it. It should affect the behavior of God's people. It should. If they live their lives in light of the values of eternity and not the values of this world. What we truly value in this life will be determined 
by the value, by the importance we place on eternity. What's really important to you in this life is determined by what's really important to you regarding eternity. It was because Paul lived in light of eternity. He lived in light of the values of eternity that he could call his afflictions light and momentary. He was living with eternity's values in view to be able to do that. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What he valued, what he really was important to him, was the eternal. So, these afflictions that others may see as so weighty, so heavy, so unbearable, Paul didn't place much value on them. Light, momentary. I'm looking at God's eternity. It was because the Old Testament saints viewed themselves as strangers and pilgrims in the earth, you read in Hebrews 11, that they forsook the world, they turned their backs upon its riches, its fame, and its acceptance. Why? Because they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly. They lived in light of eternity. And that enabled to see, to show them to see what was really, really important in life. And to live in a way, as the apostle goes on to say, that they declared plainly, their lives declared plainly that they were seeking, that they were living for the next world and not for this world. Tell you again, when you live in light of eternity, what's really important is the eternal. And that enables you to understand what's really important in this life. It will affect how you live. The more, the more you and I live in light of eternity, the more we'll grasp those words of John in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 16, where he said, and certainly John lived in light of eternity. John said, In the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Notice carefully how John has linked doing the will of God with eternal life. Remember that this is exactly what Peter is on about in this, in this section we've been studying. It's about this doing the will of God. Or to take his own words back in verse 2, that Christ died on the cross, that his people should no longer live for the lust of men, but for the will of God. That's what he's on about. And 
as we live in light of God's eternity, as we value the things that are eternal, Peter says that it will manifest itself in two particular areas. We will maintain fellowship with God, and we will maintain fellowship with God's people. We've been seeing that in both of these scenarios, living for the will of God, living in light of eternity, is about loving the Lord and loving the Lord's people. So Peter says, verse 7, that since the end of all things is drawing near, we are to be sober and watchful in prayer. And that being sober and watchful in prayer has everything to do with maintaining communion with the Lord. Communion, fellowship with God, is really all about walking. Now here's our word again. It's all about walking before the Lord. It's about walking for the Lord. It's about walking with the Lord. And it's about walking after the Lord. That really sums it up. That's communion. Walking for Him, walking before Him, walking with Him, walking after Him, following Him. That's fellowship. That's communion. That's a relationship grounded in love. And that's what God's people do when they live and walk in light of eternity. But we saw last week that as we live for eternity, we will also maintain fellowship with God's people. That's what he takes up in verses 8 through 11. The gospel always, it always has a horizontal aspect as well as a vertical aspect. They're always joined together in the Word of God. That means where there is love for God, there will automatically be love for God's people. You will not have one without the other. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. Where you have love for God, you will have love for God's people. As, uh, again, John put it in his fourth chapter, first epistle, if a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. And John will go on to say in the next chapter, this is living proof that you are, that you love God, that you love the children of God. So there's always a joining of the, of the vertical with the horizontal. And that's why Peter is now dealing here with this fact of maintaining fellowship with the Lord's people. So Peter says that since the end of all things is at hand and eternity is drawing near, above all things have fervent charity or fervent love among yourselves. You have, you have love because you're in the family of God. You do have love. It's impossible for it to be otherwise. You do love the Lord's people. It's the love of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that dwells all of God's people. Now, there are varying degrees of that love in its, in its growth stages, but it's there nonetheless. It's there. You have it. But what Peter is saying is, you seek to have a fervent love 
among yourselves. Be eager to show this love and be dead in earnest when you show this love. That's what's wrapped up in that word fervent. Eagerness. Earnestness. It's how that love is shown that began to take our attention last Sabbath day. The first of three ways in which this fervent love is shown among the Lord's people is in forgiving the sins of your brethren. That's number one on the list. For love will cover A. Remember, there's no article there, definite article. It's A. It will cover A, multitude of sins. So love will not seek to find all about the sins of your brothers and sisters, to find them out, and then when you find them out, to tell everybody else what you found. It doesn't do that. That's hatred that does that. It's, it's not love. Love pulls a veil over it and will treat that brother or sister as if it has never happened. That's fervent love. Until 70 times 7, Jesus told Peter. It's but the expression of what Paul said at the end of Ephesians chapter 4, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. He doesn't treat you as if you have offended him so many times, does he? How many times have you and I offended God? How many times have we transgressed his law in thought and word? And how often have we done that? How often have we done that in any given day of the week? And yet, does God treat us as he remembers them and holds them against us? You know not. You know not. And that's what the Holy Ghost is saying in Ephesians 4. You don't hold the grudges. You don't harbor them. Until 70 times 7, there doesn't come an end to it. You keep on forgiving because God keeps on forgiving you. And you are the children of God, and so you are to reflect the image of your Father in your forgiving. But there are two more areas in which this love is shown among fellow believers who are wanting to live in light of eternity. Not only will you and I forgive the sins of our brothers and sisters, you could understand why that is so vital to maintaining fellowship with God's people. If we don't do that, the fellowship breaks down, right? We, we, we see that clearly. But there's something else he says here. In the second place, we are going to manifest, living in light of eternity, as we manifest this, this fervent love amongst ourselves, we will show hospitality one to another. Be hospitable or use hospitality one to another without grudging. Isn't it interesting, at least it struck me as interesting, that the Holy Spirit, because he's the author, takes up the great doctrine of love within the church 
that he gets down to something so simple as hospitality? Something so simple. I can only gather that Christians showing hospitality to one another is not something God views as trivial. If the Holy Ghost has brought this up in the context of living for eternity, I mean, can you think about all the things that could have been addressed? All the things that Christians should be doing as they live in light of eternity and smack in the middle of this after forgiving one another? Now make sure that you are hospitable one to another. Have you stopped? Has that ever struck you as, hmm, Well, this isn't the only place that it's mentioned. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 13, Paul tells the Christians in the church at Rome that they need to be given to hospitality. That word given means to pursue eagerly. You ever heard the expression, well, he's given to drink? He's given to drink. He's given to drugs. Given to whatever. It's, he's, he's given over. It's, it, this, is, this is pursuit in life. So Christians are to be given to hospitality. There, there aren't any parameters set there. It's, only, it's, it's not just some Christians who are to be given to hospitality. It's all Christians. I really feel I need to stop off right here and just let you folks know there is nobody I have in mind when I preach these things. I don't sit in my study and think about, well, so-and-so needs to hear this one and so-and-so needs Sometimes I have to say it's come to mind, you know, it's the middle of the preaching, but it's nothing I sit down and plan. So don't anyone think for a moment I've got somebody in my targets as I preach very directly about what the Word of God directly deals with, because I don't. It must be important. Paul brings it up twice. In the list of qualifications for anyone who was to hold the office of elder, they must be given to, in one case, a lover of hospitality, in another case. One of the qualifications that had to be met for a widow to be added to the list of widows in a church, and if she's added to the list, it means she was going to be supported financially by the church. There are certain qualifications that had to be met. And one of them was, she have lodged strangers. It's a synonym for being hospitable. That had to be, she had to be known for that. A widow indeed was the word. A true widow. So you see something of how serious this matter is, not only when it's encouraged in the church, but it's qualification for a widow being a true widow in the church. And for an elder to be an elder, he has to be a lover of hospitality. So the question comes, doesn't it? What, just what does Peter mean when he says... Use hospitality one to another. 
Hospitality is a compound word. You know the word philos, right? Philos, Philadelphia, phila. It's the word friend, sometimes translated, or love. It's a form of love. The other word is xenos. And this word xenos is a stranger. A lover of strangers. A friend of strangers. You would understand why this was so vital in the early church when there was, because of famines, widespread hunger. There was great poverty. There was tremendous difficulty in traveling from one city to another. And there were intense persecutions that were forcing Christians to flee their homes. And they needed places to stay. There was nothing of hotels and motels. And the vast majority of the inns in that day were nothing more than houses of ill repute. And you would not want to be a Christian staying in a place like that. But we live in a day when there is an abundance of accommodations for people, restaurants to get a meal, as they would need to travel. Does this mean that this passage has no application to the church today? Even if we went back a couple hundred years, say in Scotland, where Communion service was held once a year in a particular parish. It was moved around, and people from all over would come to that particular town. And if you wanted to stay somewhere, you were staying with some other Christian. But we're well beyond that era. So is there no application here for us? Is this just something that's dated? It only applied to another day and time. Well, while Christians are not, uh, at present at least, facing the kind of persecution or famine in the land that would create such an early church scenario where this would need to be applied, there's still an underlying truth here behind this command to be hospitable. And it's an ageless truth. In its present-day application, this passage is not primarily, it's not primarily about Christians opening up their homes to other Christians and having them over for food and fellowship and a good time. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that kind of hospitality. And in fact, it, it serves a very good purpose. as it's one of the ways in which Christians can maintain and deepen fellowship between themselves. Right? And that is 
what you would want to see. Uh, a desire among the Lord's people to have fellowship that gets deeper and sweeter and opening up the home to those kinds of occasions of fellowship are, are good in and of themselves. You see, there is a fellowship between God's people that is vital within the confines of public worship. It is absolutely vital. That's the reason why the apostle said in Hebrews 10 or 11, no, it's got to be 10, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. You can't do that. It's only going to harm the fellowship among the saints of God. That's, there, there's a, a, a fellowship that can only occur in the assembly of the saints when they gather together for public worship to worship the God who saved them and to sing praises to his name together. You can't get that sitting at home around the table of food in the fellowship with your saints. You would understand uh, those who have tuned in by way of the webcast why if there is a church that you can be in and hear the word of God, that's where you need to be. This is not your church. This is not going to be, it's never going to replace the need you have of assembling together with the saints for public worship. But I'm sure you already know that. But there is also a fellowship that is very good and very healthy among Christians outside of the realm of public worship. In this sense, we, we can and we should use hospitality one to another. We open up our homes. We open up our homes. And that means we gladly give up our privacy. When you open up your home, you give up your privacy. You give up your privacy in order that our fellowship with other Christians may deepen. And that we might carry on what he goes on to talk about next. I get it. I get the natural tendency to want to remain private and to be content with public worship fellowship. But it sure is going to be hard to live in light of eternity and not engage in that kind of fellowship where you give up your privacy of your home and you say, Come, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Let's talk and let's laugh and let's pray. But that's not the application that really gets to the root of the whole matter for the Lord's people today. Remember that this is about, this word, hospitality, is about opening up your home to strangers, Christian strangers, 
because it's among yourselves, among the church. But strangers, people with whom you are not particularly familiar, those who are not part of your inner circle of friends. And we all have them. You'll understand that this would be necessary, especially when there is a sizable church with many families. The tendency is to only be hospitable, to open up your home to people in the church that you know. And because you know them, you're comfortable with them. And you're willing to give up your privacy for them. Or there are people you want to get to know. But it's when you open your home and show Christ's love to those whom you don't know that well, to newcomers, to Christians not within your normal circle that you find present-day application. They would be strangers to you. Not well-known, but still Christians. And why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do that, which is more than likely uncomfortable for you? We're comfortable opening up our homes to people we know because we're comfortable with them. We're not going to get any surprises. We're not going to be shocked. We're not going to be found, what do I say? What do I do? If So, why would you want to be a friend to strangers like this when it leaves you uncomfortable? And maybe that's putting it mildly. It's something that you just do not want to do. You don't like doing it. Now that, the answer to that question gets really to the root of the matter here. Whether it was in Peter's day or it's in our day. A Christian will be a lover and a friend to strangers. And open up their home to them because he has first opened up his heart to people. Hospitality, Christian hospitality, is a matter of the heart because it arises from this fervent love. Have fervent love among yourselves. And then he says, you make sure you're hospitable to strangers. They're not in your inner circle. They're not in your comfortable group. But show them hospitality. 
You see, it's Christ's love in you, in me, that creates, that creates a love for people. A real interest in other people. A desire to benefit them, a desire to help them. That's what a heart for people is about. Especially Christ people. Show love to all men, Paul said, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially. It's also interesting to me that the Holy Spirit adds the thought, and if he adds what I'm considering adding a thought. It's got to be a very necessary thought or it wouldn't be added. He has the thought that they were to show hospitality among themselves without grudging. Literally, it means without murmuring, without complaining. You see, to show hospitality to others, to open up your home to strangers you don't know really that well... And yet to murmur in your heart while you're doing it shows there is a real unwillingness to do it. I don't want to do this. So it wouldn't be enough then, would it just be to do it? I mean, the Holy Spirit's actually putting on um, the weight here. Don't just do it. You make sure that when you do it, you don't do it with murmuring. You don't do it begrudging them while you're doing it. I just got to do it because that's what I'm supposed to. The preacher said I should be having people over. But I don't really want to. No. The Holy Spirit says you make sure you do this without grudging, without murmuring. And we've all been there. I I, I imagine somewhere in our Christian life we've all been there. We understand what he's getting at. We think more about the trouble, the work, the expense involved than we do about what help we might give to a fellow Christian. It's more about us. This is just, you know, A nuisance. It's disturbing my afternoon or my day or my night or whatever the case is. So this means that what the Holy Spirit is saying is that we we do it right. If I can use that modern expression. We do it right when we do it cheerfully. That's why Paul told the Corinthian church, the Lord loveth a cheerful giver. The word hilarious comes from the word cheerful. You, you, you give not begrudgingly. Oh God. It's, you're happy to do it. And it's the same thing here. Happy, happy to show love to strangers within the church. We honestly 
when we have a heart for people, we honestly want to make the other person happy. It's, it's about their happiness. And it's not about our own happiness. We forget about that. It's about benefiting them, because that's what love does. It, it benefits the other person. It, it helps them. Even when it involves sacrificing our own wants, our own comfortableness. So, living in light of eternity will mean that you will seek to maintain fellowship with God's people by forgiving their sins, by showing them hospitality from your heart, and finally, by serving fellow believers through the gift God has given you. Let's look at verses 10 and 11 now. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. There's that phrase, one to another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth that God in all things might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. While Peter mentions two specific spiritual gifts in verse 11, that's the gift of speaking or prophesying, and the gift of ministry, and I am not going to take the time this morning to go back to 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 13 to go into all what that's about, but those are uh, spiritual gifts, unique gifts given. He's simply using that as an example of how Christians are to use the gifts God has given them. The first thing we need to latch on to is the statement he makes at the beginning of verse 10, as every man hath received the gift. Again, there is no definite article in front of the word gift. You can put a line through it. There's no definite article there. As every man, as literally, as each one has received a gift. The simple, unvarnished truth is that every one of God's people has received a gift from God. No one has been left out. These of the early church, Christians were blessed with various supernatural gifts, sign gifts, they're known as. Some could speak in known languages they had never learned. Others had this gift to interpret that language that one was speaking and he'd never spoken in his life, and he could actually, and he's never known the language himself to interpret it, but that, that's supernatural. There I am this morning, if I started speak, preaching in German, I've never studied German in my life. And then when I'm done, Joe Drawdy stands up and says, here's what he said. He's never studied German, I imagine, in his life. Now those are miraculous gifts. 
They were given out by the Holy Ghost in the early church until the fulfillment of Scripture. Once the canon of Scripture was complete, God needed no more to use those means to give special revelation. It was done. It's to the Word. It's to the written Word now. Not dreams and visions and tongues. Some had a gift to give healing to those who were physically ill. But all those have ceased. There is no more new revelation from God. This is the final word. God has said all He wants to say. But while those gifts are no longer given, the Lord still continues to gift every one of His people with some gift, some ability, some talent that particularly suits them to perform some task. If you're saved, He's given you a gift. That's what it's saying. It's plain as the nose on your face. These gifts have been dispensed in the church in every age according to the sovereign will of God by the Holy Spirit. Paul uses this term in 1 Corinthians 12, dividing to every man severally, literally individually, as he will. The Holy Spirit divvies them up as it pleases Him, but to every man individually. Moreover, it's a gift. It's a gift. The word gift in verse 10 is the word charisma. It simply means grace. It's a grace. That means that every one of these gifts, whatever gift or gifts the Lord has given you, it's been unearned. And not only has it been unearned, but it has been given to you undeservedly. You didn't deserve it. There was nothing in you, nothing about you, that compelled God, oh, I want to give that one this gift. Because I can really see how they will. Ooh, that's bad theology. They've been freely given, that's the point. Which means no Christian will ever have any ground, legitimate ground, whatsoever to boast or to glory in whatever gift, whatever talent the Lord has given them. Because it's a gift. It's freely given. You couldn't earn it. You could, you, you don't deserve it. It's, it's free. 
you can't take any credit for it. A gift is something you just receive. It's a gift. But there's something else Peter says about these gifts that God has given to each one of his people. That's the key to it all. It's found in the middle of verse 10. As every man hath received a gift, even so minister the same one to another. The word minister, it's the common Greek word diakoneo. We get a word deacon from it, but it simply means to serve. To serve. As every man hath received a gift, even so serve the same to one another. The primary reason that God has given you, has given me, whatever gift He's given to us, is in order that we should use them to serve the body of Christ. The whole point of service, it's understood when you think about what a servant does, the whole point of service is to minister to the needs of others through your gift so that the church will be benefited. You you, you easily see, therefore, don't you, that the gift that you've been given is not to be spent upon yourself. If the gift God has given to a Christian is not put to use, if it's not put to use to serve the body of Jesus Christ, then the body suffers for it. And so does that believer. And that's unalterable. Paul couldn't make it clearer than in Romans and 1 Corinthians when he gave the picture of the body and the members of the body. How it's so necessary that one member serves another member. And if that's not happening, then it's an adverse effect upon the body. You and I have been given two hands and two feet with a special ability to do certain things. As you know, I had some minor surgery. For me, it's minor. A few weeks ago, and this surgeon, so I understand, is very gifted with the use of his hands. Delicate hand surgery. I would never make a good hand surgeon. I'd be okay for amputations, but forget about delicate hand surgery, the nimbleness that's required, the delicacy of the operation. Gifted pair of hands. Now, we can get by with one hand 
and one foot. But it sure is a whole lot better when you have both hands and both feet working in tandem. One helping the other, isn't it? Sure it is. You know it is. That's the illustration Paul is using in 1 Corinthians 12. All of the members working together, using the gifts that God has given them, all for the edification, the building up of the body of Christ. That's what a servant does. The gift God has given you, and then, you know, I'm, don't ask me what your gift is. You, you really don't need to go looking for it. I mean, these are the gifts the Holy Spirit's given. And I would say you want an indication of what your gift is when you're walking full of the Holy Ghost. How does the Lord use you? That's a, that's a big pointer. How are you best used in the life of the church? When you're full, when you're controlled by the Holy Spirit. So this gift God has given you and me is, is not meant for us primarily. It's meant to be used to serve other believers. Even so, minister the same one to another. So, living in light of eternity, understanding what's really important in life, because we understand what's important in eternity... Living in light of eternity, maintaining fellowship with God's people, having fervent love among ourselves, always, always translates into ministering to the needs of others in the church. And would you not expect that? When the, 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 the very one whom we are to imitate, the Lord Jesus Christ said this, I came not to be ministered unto, I came not to be served, but I came to minister. I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Would you not expect that in this context of living for eternity, in this context of holy living, of doing the will of God. And Jesus Christ said, this is why I'm here. I'm not here for someone to serve me. I'm here to serve others. Wouldn't you expect that's, that's just the norm that the Holy Spirit would say, now make sure, you, you believers make sure that you use the gift that God's given you in the church. I don't have any gift. Oh, yes, you do. Yes, you do. I've seen them. And I've seen them at work. You might not realize it, but I've seen them. And I have benefited. That's how it's supposed to work. The Lord has gifted me to teach and to preach His Word. I'm not bragging about that. It's a gift. I didn't earn it. 
I didn't pursue it. I didn't seek it. But the Lord gave it to me. And for 30 years, that's what I've sought to do, to use the gift to benefit the church. But it's the whole body working this way. Peter says, we are to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Stewards. That means the Lord has entrusted us with a gift. He's put it into our care to watch over it, to make sure it's put to use, designed to do the things he gave it to us for in the first place. That's being a good steward. Manifold grace of God. I say, if we would just be as careful stewards of the gift God has given us as we are about our money, as we are about temporal things, we make sure we take care of those things. My, my, what a difference it would make in the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world. What's the ultimate motive? What is the ultimate motive he gives to them for doing this? that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That God might be glorified. You see, that automatically takes away any thought that the believer who has been gifted, has been given a certain talent, has any ground for glorying in the gift. Because it's all been given that God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. And that's the only way that God will ever be glorified. In the church, it must always be through Jesus Christ. That's living in light of eternity. The Lord write that word on our hearts for His name's sake. Bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek Him together. Our God and our Father in heaven, we, we thank Thee for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank Thee for that unspeakable gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank Thee for whatever gift or gifts Thou hast blessed us with. Lord, we know we're happiest when we're using those gifts for others. It's a little bit of heaven on earth to stand in this pulpit each Lord's Day and preach the Word. 
Surely, Lord, it's a little bit of heaven on earth when thy people are good stewards of the manifold grace of God and using the gifts to serve others. So dismiss us now with this thought lingering in our souls. Show us, Lord, how we can better be hospitable to strangers. Grow the love of the Lord within us. Enable us one day at a time to walk for thee and before thee and with thee and after thee. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.